Before we begin this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef, I have just a couple of things to say. This week, we are talking about Anthony Bourdain. This episode is sad. I apologize. It also obviously deals with suicide. If you do not want to listen, I completely understand. I am writing this intro after I just finished recording the episode, and I just want to say that if you are in a dark place, if you want to talk, please get help. There are so many wonderful services available to help people with depression, and please reach out to them. You can reach out to me if you choose to for any reason at all at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com. I would also like to say that out of the sheer respect that I have for the life and work of Anthony, I will not be running any ads today. I refuse to commercialize this episode in any way. I just want people to listen to it. That's enough from me. Let's get right into the show. On June 8th, 2018, I woke up before my alarm clock. It was early, and I had to get ready to go back to my kitchen. The summer months in the town that I work in on Lake Huron in Canada are insanely busy, and my new restaurant had only been open for a month, and it was 14-hour days trying to survive the never-ending onslaught of people walking the main street and wanting to eat. I remember opening my eyes and picking up my phone that was lying next to me, and there was a Twitter notification. Anthony Bourdain found dead at 61 in France. I stared at my screen and blinked several times. I hoped that for one brief second I was existing in the world between dreams and reality and I was having a nightmare. The words did not go away when I opened my eyes again. I sat bolt upright with a feeling building in my stomach that felt like I was going to throw up. I opened my phone and hit my BBC News app and there it was, the top story, Anthony Bourdain found dead of apparent suicide. For the first time in as long as I can remember, I started crying. A text message came through and it was from my former head chef, Dan, the man who gave me my first head chef job at the age of 27, a man who I gave a copy of Kitchen Confidential to when he did, and in the front cover of the book, I wrote, there are two reasons that I became a chef, this book and you, and I thank you. The text message he had sent said, are you okay? I, like so many of you, was not okay. A second message came in from my former sous chef. She wrote, Brian, I am so sad. A third came in from my wife's uncle, a man who shared in the admiration that I had for Anthony and still have for him. My wife told me it would be okay. I spent the morning telling people it would be okay. The entire global industry of food reached out to one another on June 8th and made sure that everyone was okay as more and more news flooded in about the death of our mentor. That day, I went to work and brought every single Anthony Bourdain book I owned, which was all of them. We had an open kitchen where guests could see us in our aprons and tattoos making their food, and I put his books on top of the pass in a subtle and somber memorial. Away from me and the cooks I was working with, even though we were there making food, even though for a lot of us, the reason and figure that inspired us to enter a kitchen in the first place was gone, and in such an unbelievable and confusing way. It was by far the worst day I have ever had cooking. All day long, as people came into the restaurant, they looked at the kitchen and pointed at the books. Cameras came out. Handshakes were given across the pass. Everyone, young, old, it didn't matter. Everyone felt that death so very hard. 
This Saturday marks one year since Anthony Bourdain did the unthinkable and ended his life in a hotel room in France. Anthony Bourdain is a man who needs no introduction. For a lot of you like me who have read his books, watched his shows every week, and literally worshipped the ground he stood on, the show today is one that you will know. For those of you who only know him from his television shows and do not know or understand why Bourdain is so revered, so important, and is so sorely missed, hang in there. Today on Let's Talk About Chef, we are talking about the life and legend that was and will always be Anthony Bourdain. I was young when I left home And I've been all the rambling round And I never wrote a letter to my home To my home, Lord Love to my home And I never wrote a letter to my home It was just the other day Anthony Bourdain was born in New Jersey on June 25, 1956. His father was a classical music executive for Columbia Records, and his mother was a staff editor at the New York Times. Music and writing were always a huge part of his life. Bourdain's love of food was started on an oyster boat in France. He was 10 years old and had spent the summer with his parents and younger brother traveling the country by car and complaining nonstop, as children do. He wanted to eat hamburgers. He wanted American television. He hated the weird milk and ham sandwiches and weird butter that he was forced to eat every day. And his parents suffered for weeks trying to get their children to enjoy the homeland of his father until that fateful day when he and his family rode a small oyster boat out into the bay and waited for it to settle on the bottom. The oyster man reached down into the water and pulled out a briny, seaweed-covered oyster and offered it to the Bourdains, who all recoiled in shock at the thought of eating the thing except Anthony. He stepped forward, and the oyster was cracked open and handed to him. He slurped it back, and everything changed. After that morning, he spent the rest of the trip eating everything and drinking everything he could get his small hands on, and it was a summer that shaped his love for food and excess for the rest of his life. By the time he dropped out of Vassar College after two years in 1973, a directionless and rebellious Anthony went to Provincetown, Cape Cod, a Portuguese fishing village that is a vacation retreat for the New York wealthy in the summers. His friends were going to spend the summer drinking on the beach and getting high at a beach house, and that sounded like a good enough plan for him to tag along. After a few weeks of the type of behavior that teenagers are capable of, his roommates got pissed off that he never had any money to help pay for the weed and beer, and so one of them got him a job dishwashing at a local tourist trap restaurant called The Dreadnought, a seafood-themed restaurant where he walked into his first kitchen filled with a team of cooks and a chef that he could only describe as pirates. The drinking, sex, constant drug use, and also camaraderie within the walls of that kitchen gave the young Bourdain the idea that this was a world where he fit in. It was one day during his shift when the restaurant had a bridal party there eating lunch after getting married on the beach. Everyone in the kitchen looked up from the deep frying clams and shoving lobsters into the steam boiler to see the bride still in her wedding dress whispering something to the chef. 
The chef smiled deviously and shouted to his sous chef to take over the line and followed the bride out of the back door of the kitchen, where only a few minutes later, Bourdain and the rest of the kitchen staff watched from the window as the head chef was screwing the new bride with her dress pulled up over her back as she leaned over an empty 40-gallon barrel. It was at that moment that Anthony Bourdain knew he wanted to become a chef. The next summer, his first restaurant was bought out by another more successful restaurant in town, and if you wanted your old job back, you had to go and audition in the kitchen for the new boss. Anthony hitchhiked his way to Provincetown wearing a blue suit and blue shoes and had to try and keep up on the line during a 500-plate dinner service, never really having worked a line before. As he spun in a circle, the panic setting in, the only way being in the weeds in a kitchen can, he burned himself grabbing a sauté pan that had just come out of the oven and dropped an order of osobuco to the ground. Holding his hand, he foolishly asked the real grill cook if he could have a band-aid and maybe some burn cream. The sounds of cooking and service stopped. The kitchen went quiet. Tyrone, the six-foot-tall, hulking veteran cook, looked at Bourdain and bent over, picking up the pan that had just caused Anthony to scream with pain on his bare hands and put it on the grill. He then held his hands up, showing the young man the scars, boils, and blisters that covered his hands while the rest of the staff laughed and made jokes about the wuss who needed burn cream. It was that event, that single night of humiliation that made Bourdain decide to not only get into the Culinary Institute of America, not only work in the best restaurants in the world, take the pain, grief, and bruises that come with becoming a truly great chef, and then he would go back to Provincetown and show these cooks what a real chef could do. It didn't really work out that way. Bourdain made his way through his time at the Culinary Institute of America learning the basics of cuisine from the school's angry French chefs. Here he was, already a somewhat seasoned cook who was used to the abuse and toil of what real kitchens were like, surrounded by kids who had never stepped foot in a professional kitchen. He was already miles ahead of the game. He famously would bring bouillon cubes inside the sleeves of his chef whites into his stock class and slip the cubes into his pot, confusing the teacher as to how he was able to get such deep flavors in such a short period of time. He obviously got an A in that course. After the CIA, the newly educated and after another summer in Provincetown as a line cook, skilled Anthony got a job immediately after graduating at the Rainbow Room on top of the Rockefeller Center in Manhattan. On the 62nd floor of that institution, he made his bones surviving in a kitchen with such unbearable heat, the cooks would often pass out on the line or the ceiling tiles would randomly burst into flame. Surviving the minimum wage, incredibly long and busy hours in that kitchen where at any moment while cooking over 100 a la carte dinners, you would have to also plate 500 beef wellington for a party in one of the private rooms, he was also subject to unwanted attention from the chef de garde manger, Louis, who would at any opportunity Anthony wasn't pay attention to what was going on behind him, would sneak up and jam his hand in between his butt cheeks and try and jam his finger as deep as it would go into the ass of the young cook. One day, Bourdain saw him coming out of the corner of his eye, and just when Louis tried to molest him again, he jammed a long and rusted serving fork as deep as he could into the knuckles of his would-be rapist. He never had a problem with Louis's unwanted attention again. The Rainbow Room taught Anthony how to cook for real. It taught him how to deal with such uncalculable stress and exhaustion that he was able to survive in the business of being a chef for a very long time. It was 1976. 
It would be 24 years of working and being a chef in New York City before he would write the article Don't Eat Before Reading This, which was published in The New Yorker, that would lead him to publishing the memoir that literally changed his life and the lives of so many others. But we're not there yet. The next years for Bourdain were filled with going to kitchen after kitchen throughout Manhattan, struggling to make ends meet, and usually being the chef that would be called in to try and fix a restaurant that was doomed to close. There were some successes and some failures, but that was nothing compared to the problem of his growing addiction to drugs. Anthony Bourdain was a crackhead and heroin addict. It was a disease that ruled his life for a very long time. One of his lowest points was selling his much-loved record and book collections on the sidewalk in the winter in New York trying to make enough money to score. He, for a very long time, didn't work. His days were spent dodging his landlord, ignoring the bill collectors, calling constantly when he had enough money for the phone bill, and trying to get high. It was during this period that he approached a former boss who he had worked for and asked for a job. He knew he needed to get back into the kitchen and that he was going to die if he didn't. And the man who Bourdain affectionately called Bigfoot gave him a Saturday evening shift and the brunch shift to help him try to make ends meet. He was 22 years old. Bigfoot is a man that Bourdain credits with saving his life, a New York City restaurateur who for no reason at all hired the junkie thief and gave him another shot. He didn't let him down. Bigfoot helped to make Bourdain a chef. He taught the importance of being on time, waking up in the morning, and going to work. How to basically be an adult. And one that can keep their demons at bay. He was essentially a very weird father figure. Bourdain continued to work in kitchens throughout the city, including a mob-run restaurant where machine guns were being assembled in the washroom the day before opening, a restaurant in a gross hotel so slow that the sole waiter would have to come and wake him up from sleeping on bags of flour when a guest made the foolish decision to enter through the doors, and a short-lived theater district restaurant that changed its menu every week in a desperate attempt to try and stay afloat, all the while trying to be clean and somewhat sober. It was during these lost years that Anthony started to write again. Maybe it was the boredom of not being high, the spare time he all of a sudden had when he wasn't watching Simpsons reruns or classic films or voraciously reading anything he could get his hands on. It started slowly, usually in the morning before his wife Nancy would wake up. He would rise at 5.55 in the morning, drink coffee, light a cigarette, and sit down at his typewriter and start writing. At first, it was essays, short paragraphs, and attempts at being the next Hemingway or Frost. Like most writers, it takes time to stop sounding like the ones who influence you and to eventually use your own experiences to dictate your words. Bourdain only knew two things, drugs and kitchens, and so he started to write a fiction book that he called Bone in the Throat about an Italian chef who goes to work at a mafia-run restaurant. It was filled with kitchen humor and wit, and although it was slightly critically acclaimed when it was published in 95, it failed to sell virtually any copies. But that didn't matter. He was a published author. And so the writing continued. As he was still cooking in kitchens during his days and evenings to pay the bills, he would fill every spare moment he had writing the follow-up to Bone in the Throat, calling its sequel Gone Bamboo. Again, a commercial flop, and again he would cook and write when he could cooking and writing, cooking and writing. He stepped away from fiction and one day in 1998, feeling particularly ironic and self-sabotaging, wrote an essay called Don't Eat Before Reading This. 
In that article, he told whomever he thought would read it one day the truth about what goes on behind the kitchen doors of the restaurants that you love. The Food Network was in its infancy. Food media was so not what it has become today that the words he put on paper that morning were much to his shock and amazement published by the New Yorker magazine. And it shook the city of New York and the world of restaurants literally to its core. Never before had somebody spilled the truth about what really happens in kitchens, who cooks in kitchens, and why you should never eat fish on a Monday. Don't Eat Before Reading This by Anthony Bourdain Good food, good eating is all about blood and organs, cruelty and decay. It's about sodium-loaded pork fat, stinky triple cream cheeses, the tender thymus glands and distended livers of young animals. It's about danger, risking the dark bacterial forces of beef, chicken, cheese and shellfish. Your first 207 Wellfleet oysters may transport you to a state of rapture, but your 208th may send you to bed with sweats, chills and vomits. Gastronomy is the science of pain. Professional cooks belong to a secret society whose ancient rituals derive from the principles of stoicism in the face of humiliation, injury, fatigue, and the threat of illness. The members of a tight, well-greased kitchen staff are a lot like a submarine crew, confined for most of their waking hours in hot, airless spaces and ruled by despotic leaders. They often acquire the characteristics of the poor saps who were press-ganged into the Royal Navies of Napoleonic times, superstition, a contempt for outsiders, and a loyalty to no flag but their own. A good deal has changed since Orwell's memoir of the months he spent as a dishwasher in Down and Out in Paris and London. Gas ranges and exhaust fans have gone a long way towards increasing the lifespan of the working culinarian. Nowadays, most aspiring cooks come into the business because they want to. They have chosen this life, studied for it. Today's top chefs are like star athletes. They bounce from kitchen to kitchen, free agents in search of more money and more acclaim. I've been a chef in New York for more than 10 years, and for the decade before that, a dishwasher, a prep drone, a line cook, and a sous chef. I came into the business when cooks still smoked on the line and wore headbands. A few years ago, I wasn't surprised to hear rumors of a study of the nation's prison population which reportedly found that the leading civilian occupation among inmates before they were put behind bars was cook. As most of us in the restaurant business know, there is a powerful strain of criminality in the industry ranging from the dope-dealing busboy with beeper and cell phone to the restaurant owner who has two sets of accounting books. In fact, it was the unsavory side of professional cooking that attracted me to it in the first place. In the early 70s, I dropped out of college and transferred to the Culinary Institute of America. I wanted it all. The cuts and burns on the hands and wrists, the ghoulish kitchen humor, the free food, the pilfered booze, the camaraderie that flourished with rigid order and nerve, shuddering chaos. I would climb the chain of command from Malkarn, meaning bad meat or new guy, to chefdom, doing whatever it took until I ran my own kitchen and had my own crew of cutthroats, the culinary equivalent of the Wild Bunch. A year ago, my latest Doom mission, a high-profile restaurant in the Times Square area, went out of business. The meat, fish, and produce purveyors got the news that they were going to take it in the neck for yet another ill-conceived enterprise. When customers called for reservations, they were informed by a pre-recorded announcement that our doors had closed. Fresh from that experience, I began thinking about becoming a traitor to my profession. Say it's a quiet Monday night and you've just checked your coat in that swanky Art Deco upstate in the Flatiron District and you're looking to tuck into a thick slab of pepper-crusted yellowfin tuna or 20-ounce cut of certified black Angus beef. Well done. What are you in for? The fish specialty is reasonably priced, and the place got two stars in the Times. Why not go for it? If you like four-day-old fish, be my guest. Here's how things usually work. 
the chef orders his seafood for the weekend on Thursday night. It arrives on Friday morning. He's hoping to sell the bulk of it on Friday and Saturday nights when he knows that the restaurant will be busy and he'd like to run out of the last few orders by Sunday evening. Many fish purveyors don't deliver on Saturday, so the chances are that the Monday night tuna you want has been kicking around in the kitchen since Friday morning, under God knows what conditions. When a kitchen is in full swing, proper refrigeration is almost non-existent. What with the many openings of the refrigerator doors, the cooks rummage frantically during the rush, mingling your tuna with the chicken, the lamb, or the beef, even if the chef has ordered just the right amount of tuna for the weekend and has had to reorder it for a Monday delivery, the only safeguard against the seafood supplier's offloading junk is the presence of a vigilant chef who can make sure that the delivery is fresh. That article, and you should definitely look up and read it, caused Anthony Bourdain to become somewhat of a celebrity and caused mayhem in New York. Book publishers wanted more. An offer in advance was quickly given to him to expand upon the article he was writing, and he gladly took the money with the promise to write and deliver a book at some point. But there was a slight problem. After spending so many years a drugged-out junkie who had surrounded himself with other people he couldn't trust, he did not leave his day job, which at this time was as the executive chef of Leal, a brasserie in New York. He was actually making a name for himself in the food world, and he was not going to walk away from the steady pay and a job that he loved to bet it all on the pipe dream of becoming a writer, and so he continued to write in the mornings and on days off when he had the time. In the year 2000, the book Kitchen Confidential finally came out. It was, and still is, a no-holds-barred telling of the life that he had lived locked inside the kitchens of New York. The truth behind how restaurants actually run and all with his signature sarcastic and dry humor. It rocketed to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, and all of a sudden, here he was, a 44-year-old aging chef appearing on late-night television, being interviewed by magazines, and actually, for the first time in his life, earning enough money to open a savings account. He quickly was offered to write a follow-up to Kitchen Confidential, and seeing a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, he told his publishers that he wanted to write his new book about traveling around the world and eating. He wanted to go back to Paris, to see Vietnam, maybe even go to Australia, to go to the places that only a few months before he would never have dreamed of seeing in real life. And because he was the food world's newest hotshot, they said yes. The Food Network also approached him to film his travels when he was doing his research for the book, and so he amusingly said sure. He was going to take every last cent that this 15 minutes of fame would give him, and yet he still didn't quit his job as the executive chef of Leal. Welcome to my world. Two escargot, pate, frise, two green salads. Okay, man, it's not here. Lamb chops, steak frites. Shouldn't you be doing something? Two cold filet and a pepper steak. Come on, make the dessert. Chocolate tart, please. As a cook, tastes and smells are my memories, and now I'm in search of new ones. So I'm leaving New York City and hope to have a few epiphanies around the world, and I'm willing to go to some lengths to do that. I'm looking for extremes of emotion and experience. I'll try anything, I'll risk everything, I have nothing to lose. A Cook's Tour turned into a 35-episode, two-season series that if you watch today is a fascinating insight into the man that Anthony Bourdain would become. Here was a tall, skinny, leather jacket-wearing, chain-smoking Anthony Bourdain with wonder and sometimes giddiness on television, 
but he did it all with the bravado and toughness that came from being a chef for so long, going to places and eating food and asking questions that no other food show seemed capable of. By 2003, his contract ended with the Food Network, and he published the book A Cook's Tour. During that time, he moved over to the Travel Channel, and by 2005, launched his new show and the one that most of us remember him best for, No Reservations. No reservations took Anthony quite literally around the world. He became the polished and ever-curious host that we all watched as he went to the best dining rooms and also the places that a lot of people never go. It ran for 142 episodes over eight seasons. Bourdain and his time on No Reservations made him the culinary hero that he was to chefs and cooks everywhere. Here was one of us. A man who had spent so long in kitchens going to places that even though we will probably never get to see, asking the same questions that we would, eating the weird food, and taking part in the customs that we would do if we were in his place. Although his celebrity rose and rose, he never forgot where he came from and always made a special effort to get back and say hello to the kitchen staffs around the globe wherever he ate. In May 2012, it was announced that he would be leaving the Travel Channel and going to, of all places, CNN. He was frustrated with the Travel Channel who continually wanted to keep remaking the style of show like No Reservations and now The Layover. He wanted to go places that he hadn't been before, places that television might have never gone to before. And as he was getting older and seeing more and more of the world wanted to cover more than just food, he wanted to cover the people in these places. And CNN being the news giant that it was could not only get him there, but also gave him and his production partners creative freedom. And so, parts unknown. His Peabody, Emmy, and beloved show premiered in We all know what happened while Anthony and his best friend Le Bernardin chef Eric Repère were filming for Parts Unknown in Strasbourg, France. I am not going to talk about it. Anthony Bourdain spent the first 44 years of his life dreaming of being able to see the world. He dreamed of Paris and Tokyo, Vietnam, and everywhere else he thought he would never get to go. He struggled through trying to survive as a chef, knowing full well that the world was out there waiting for him just like it is for all of us. So close, and yet for most of us listening, impossibly out of reach. We will never know why he killed himself. We will never know why on that June night, one year ago, he ended a life that most of us would give anything to have. I miss Anthony Bourdain. I miss his words. I miss his voice. 
and I miss his unique and beautiful way of looking at the world. We all miss Anthony Bourdain in some regard. To reach the end of the world. To have seen and eaten all that our stupid little planet has to offer. To be able to spend 18 years of your life traveling and experiencing everything is a dream that you and I will never get to have. Anthony Bourdain got to live that dream. He got to do things that would make anyone want to be him, and instead of doing it by himself, he took us all on the ride. And that's all that matters. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark, and produced by Timothy McDonald. Our theme song this week was I Was Young When I Left Home by Anthony Johnson and Bryce Desner. If you want to reach out to us for any reason at all, please write to us at letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Instagram at letstalkaboutchef, or you can follow me personally at Chef Brian Clark. If you are struggling for any reason, please reach out and get help. We are back next week with a much happier episode of Let's Talk About Chef. And until then, have a great service and have a great week. I can go home.